0: Nehemiah chapter 1 and we started this a few weeks ago have taken a pause for Easter and then uh, the group from uh, Virginia and uh, want to jump back in to the book of Nehemiah this week I'm sure most of you are aware that uh, Elon Musk is involved in buying Twitter for about how much what do you think $100 billion. 43 billion dollars So a lot of money, a lot of money. Of course, you know, after that uh, surface, has been all over the news, and, uh, you know, there's some memes and and rumors started to to go out that Elon Musk was going to buy a few more things. You know, maybe that uh, he was going to buy, I heard that he might, this is all rumors, of course, but in facetious, but... Uh, that he might buy Zillow and fix the, the Zillow estimates. Uh, maybe he's going to buy all the McDonald's and fix all the broken ice cream machines. Um, uh, you know, maybe he's going to buy all the subscription services and lump them into one, you know, instead of nickel and diamond on everything. I uh, heard this morning that he's thinking about buying Italy and restoring the Roman Empire. So there's all kinds of things that Elon Musk you know, may, may uh, do uh, to respond to different needs, at least that he sees uh, in the world. And in Nehemiah chapter 1, we're going to see how God uses a man by the name of Nehemiah uh, to begin to respond to a need and to move forward by faith. And uh, perhaps, as we did in some uh, kind of table supper conversation, uh, you know, we came up for a few ideas of our own that we thought Elon Musk could help out with. You know, maybe a building for the church, uh, maybe a new, you know, vehicle. So that needs are not uh, lacking. And Nehemiah faced a need. Uh, he was in an, uh, an area of comfort for you know when he saw this need, but then he began to move forward by faith. So let's pick up in Nehemiah chapter one and then read first of all verses one through three. The words of Nehemiah the son of Hacaliah. Now it happened in the month of Kislev in the twentieth year, as I was in Susa the citadel, which is a fortified city, that Hanani, one of my brothers, came with certain men from Judah. And I asked them concerning the Jews who escaped, who had survived the exile, and concerning Jerusalem, and they said to me, the remnant there in the province who had survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates are destroyed by fire. Lord, I pray that as we look at Nehemiah that we wouldn't only see a man, a God that did respond by faith and was a courageous leader, Lord, was faithful, he faced opposition, God, but I pray that even more than that, we would see your sovereignty. We would see your powerful hand. Lord, we would see a God that uh, even as Nehemiah brings back to to remembrance, a covenant-keeping God, an awesome God, a powerful God. And Lord, that as we're reminded of these truths back in the day of Nehemiah, uh, one of the last books to be written in the Old Testament, may these truths remind us today, May 1st in 2022, as we face difficulties, Lord, as we see enormous needs in the world around us. And God, I pray that likewise, as Nehemiah did, that we would move forward by faith. Lord, I pray that we would uh, not shrink away from needs. I pray that we wouldn't uh, respond in fear or to run away, Lord, but that we would look to you, trust, depend on you, and know that you are enough that Christ is more than enough, even as we looked at that a few weeks ago and dived into Scripture and saw that you are certainly more than enough. Lord, we love you. We thank you so much for your love for us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Sovereignty of God, there's an awareness of the need, first of all. Nehemiah becomes aware of a need at hand, and we begin to see right away the sovereignty of God at work. This isn't just a story about Nehemiah. Even as we prepare the setting, the backdrop of this Old Testament book, uh, one of the key themes throughout the book of Nehemiah is God's sovereign hand, that he orchestrates details and puts people in position. And that's where, what we see in the very first verse. Nehemiah is placed in a strategic position. Nehemiah chapter 1, and verse 1, the words of Nehemiah, the son of Hekaliah. Now it ha- happened in the month of Kislev, in the 20th year, as I was in Susa, the citadel. This was an elevated region east of Babylon. Uh, it was the location of the palace. So he was in a strategic place. But we also see at the very end of chapter 1, and we'll, we'll kind of dive into this phrase a little bit more, but I'm going to go ahead and jump ahead. the very end of chapter 1, it says, Now I was cupbearer to the king. He didn't just throw that in as like, oh, just by chance. You know, I just happened to be. That was part of God's sovereign work in putting Nehemiah in not only a strategic place geographically, but also a position of influence. So that when he became aware of this need, then God would use this man and the strategic place that he was to begin to move forward by faith and to respond and to make a difference. This is also the setting of Esther. Esther. So it's interesting, you see, you know, from the book of Esther, and and Seuss is mentioned, uh, and we see, you know, God's working throughout the Old Testament books and always bringing glory to himself. So God placed Nehemiah in a strategic position, but he also brought him an alarming message. As we were shocked a few weeks ago to hear, you know, that our, our co-worker, dear friend Diane, had been diagnosed with a brain tumor, that's an alarming message. And Nehemiah is, is at a place where, you know, he was in a palace. He was cut bare to the king. I would imagine a pretty comfortable spot, a, a pretty important position. And then all of a sudden, not all of a sudden to God, of course, it's his sovereignty, but he becomes aware of an alarming need. Verse 2 says it came by his brother Hanani. Hanani had gone back to Jerusalem on the second return uh, with Ezra. And so Hanani brought this news. Now, I find it interesting that Nehemiah asked. Nehemiah could have just said, you know, out of sight, out of mind. I'm I'm not really going to, I'm comfortable here. God's put me in an important position here. And so I'm just going to kind of keep focused. And what happens there in Jerusalem happens, and so be it. No, he asked. He wanted to know. And so we see that in verse verse 2, that Hanani, one of my brothers, came with certain men from Judah, and I asked them think We can learn from this that Nehemiah was concerned about areas outside of his comfort zone. May we be sensitive to the leading of the Holy Spirit and, and God as we go about in our duties. Kids, as you're in school, that you would be aware of other students that are in need. As I've had an opportunity, as I've, I've kind of joked throughout the last couple of weeks, as I was roped into helping coach a uh, a little boy's soccer team. And, uh, and I don't know a whole lot about soccer, but as I've been coaching the team, I'm, I'm learning more and more needs that some of these kids, some of these boys, as they come to practice, they're not thinking only about kicking a soccer ball around. They're thinking about, okay, what parents' home am I going to this weekend? Where am I going to be next week? What, what's school going to look like for me? Who's going to help me with my homework? It, it's burdened our heart as we see needs that are all around us and outside of us. As a church family, as we've prayed for Ukraine and prayed for the Skudarnov family and their loved ones um, in Ukraine, all of these are things both close and far that, like Nehemiah, we need to be aware, we need to be sensitive and say, God, how can I help? How can I be involved? What do you want me to do? So we see that God sent this message, it wasn't a mistake, it wasn't just a coincidence, he didn't just happen uh, to see his brother Hanani, no, God orchestrated all of that uh, for that intersection to happen and that message to be shared. Now, Verses 2 and 3 gives us some detail of the situation of God's people. Let's look at verse 2 again. Hanani, one of my brothers, came with certain men from Judah, and I asked them concerning the Jews who escaped, who had survived the exile, and concerning Jerusalem. And they said to me, the remnant there in the province who had survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates are destroyed by fire. Now you remember the temple has been, the second temple as sometimes it's called, was already completed then. But years passed and the walls were still in shambles. And as some of you maybe who have lived or visited outside of our country, it's very common for uh, in, in other parts of the world for homes to be surrounded by walls. We were driving in Marietta the other day, and there's a new neighborhood going up, and just by the, the huge walls that are being built, I think the houses are probably going to be more than a couple thousand dollars. I mean, it's going to be the neighborhood. I mean, it's some huge walls and big columns. But imagine if something like that were to happen, and then all around a neighborhood like that, or a city, the the walls are just in shambles, and gates are burned by fire. And Hanani says, listen, they're in shame. They're in great trouble. So we see the situation of of God's people. They're in great trouble and, and disgrace. The wall has been broken, verse 3. The gates have been burned. So then we begin to see in verse 4 a response to the need. Nehemiah chapter 1 and verse 4, As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned. And I think this is important for days. It wasn't just a kind of in the moment, in the heat of the moment, an emotional response. But no, for days he, he wept and he mourned. We kind of see a progression of an inward response here. He heard the message, and he sat down and wept, and he mourned, and then he fasted, but he prayed. And again, another important lesson is as we face needs, and you either have faced some huge needs, or you are, or you will, or maybe all of the above. But to be human means that we are not exempt from problems. Even as a believer, even as a Christ follower, we will face some serious problems. And a quick text from my, my friend Nathan, he said, these are some of the, he didn't say some, he said, these are the hardest days of my life. I can only imagine. I can only imagine. But yet he followed up and he says, but I continue to trust in the Lord. And Nehemiah was burdened, he was moved, he, he wept, he fasted, but then he prayed. That was the inward response. In chapter 2 and verse 1, we won't get into chapter 2 a whole lot, but there's four months that pass between when he is aware of the need and becomes aware of the situation, the alarming situation of the people of, uh, of Israel, the Jews in Jerusalem, to when he finally speaks to the king. And I believe that it wasn't just these couple days that he prayed, but I believe throughout those four months, he continued to go before God, Jehovah, and say, Lord, what can I do? Lord, may may you have mercy on your people. May you restore the walls in in the city, remembering that Israel, part of their purpose, was to show forth in all nations around them the beauty and the majesty and the powerful God, Jehovah, that they served. But they were in great trouble. Then we see an upward response, beginning in verse 5. And I said, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. Let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant. Then I now pray before you day and night for the people of Israel, your servants, confessing the sins of the people of Israel, Which we have sinned against you. Even I and my father's house have sinned. We have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, the statutes, and the rules that you commanded your servant Moses. Verse 8 Remember the word that you commanded your servant Moses, saying, If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though you're in the uttermost parts of heaven, from there I will gather them and bring them to the place that I have chosen to make my name dwell there. You see, this was so much more than just a construction project. This was so much more than just a few walls being built. This was to magnify and to give glory to God, to the God of Israel. We continue on in verse 10. They're your servants and your people whom you have redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name and give success to your servant today and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. So I want to go back through and kind of pick out a few things of this upward response to God. First of all, Nehemiah remembered who God was. And we, too, as we face difficulties and as we face needs, that we would remind ourselves of who God is. It's worship. That we would come to Him and worship His name and remind ourselves the attributes and the God that we serve. So we see, you know, Him saying, O Lord God of heaven. He isn't just a leader. Thank God for that. Thank God that we don't have to go into despair during this political season when, unfortunately, the hope doesn't lie. I say unfortunately, actually, it's great fortunate for us, it's great fortune for us that our hope doesn't lie in politicians. That our one hope is Jesus Christ and God, and he's enough. So the Lord God of heaven, great, he calls him. Now, when, when we face needs, is, are those the immediate responses that we often have? When we face especially big needs, do we automatically think, oh, man, God of heaven, great. Or what is our natural tendency as humans to, to be focused on? It's not, it's not, oh, great God. It's like, oh, great God. What? See the difference? Our, our, oftentimes, our immediate response is despair and how are we going to get through this? And, Lord, what's going on? But Nehemiah says, boy, the Lord God of heaven, great and awesome God. Awesome God. Children are, are funny sometimes. They're frustrating at other times, but they're a blessing of the Lord, right? But sometimes children can, it, it makes, they make us smile and one of my nephews, uh, he's, he's a grown man now, young man, but I remember when he was younger, uh, a lot of times if he was having a good day, he'd say, this is the best day of my life. Best day of my life. So one time we are out on the playground, he was swinging, his name's Bailey, and he said, Uncle David, man, this is the best day of my life. So he was always thinking, you know, this is awesome. Well, we serve an awesome God. And as we we dive in more of that and remind ourselves of His majesty and of His attributes and of His faithfulness, that He is the God of heaven. He's not just the God of our little circle or of our little place here on earth and those problems, but He's the God of all of the universe. That's part of the upward response that Nehemiah had and that we should have. But he goes further. He says, great God, awesome God. I saw yesterday a little soccer game that we had at the end of the game. I saw one of the dads, he had his t-shirt it and he says, Super Dad. Now, I don't know what he did to, to win that t-shirt. I was a little jealous, but, you know, Super Dad, his name's James. And I uh, and enjoyed talking to him and I said, man, James, Super Dad. Yeah, yeah. Well, we serve much more than just a Super Dad. As a, as a dad, I fail a lot. As a dad, I can't be there for my kids all the time. As a dad, I don't always have the emotional and and spiritual response that I should have. But our dad, our God the Father does. He's awesome. He's great. He's the Lord God of heaven. He's a covenant-keeping God. Oh, Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God, verse 5, who keeps Covenant. What a blessing it was for Dad and I to sit across a table from a new believer that many of you met. I'm just going to say um, V for, for privacy, but that, we, that many of you met several weeks ago, sat across the table, and was able to share with him, God does not lie, and he will keep his promise, and he will preserve you in your newfound walk and salvation in Christ. And to see him smile and say, yes, yes. That's the promise we have. He's a covenant-keeping God. From Genesis 1 all the way in through the end of Revelation, we see God be a faithful God. He's a covenant-keeping God. Next phrase that Nehemiah uses, heaven, Lord God of heaven, great, awesome, keeps covenant. And then says, "In steadfast love. Steadfast love. Steadfast love when we're doing well, when we're healthy, when our bank accounts look good. Kids, when, you're, when you don't have big exams, when you have double recess time. You know, all these things, yes, steadfast love, but also when we're in the darkest days of our life. Also when we face the alarming messages of life. A chapter that has been a psalm that has been a huge encouragement to me and i would encourage you to read this later the whole the whole psalm would be psalm 63 but two verses i want to point out in psalm 63 verses 3 and 4 it says because your steadfast love is better than life my lips will praise you now get that we there's a lot of things in life that we value we enjoy doing fun things. We had the opportunity yesterday after uh, having to delay this trip on spring break. Mary got the flu, and so we had to, to cancel a trip to the Tennessee Aquarium. Yesterday, we were able to go, and it was we were amazed. It was beautiful to see God's creation and to see the, uh, the jellyfish and to see the, the, the river fish and then the, the ocean and all these things. Those are, those are fun things that we enjoy, but life's not all about going to places like the Tennessee Aquarium. It's also about hearing sometimes these alarming messages. Sometimes it's about failed dreams. Sometimes it's about extreme difficulties in relationships with people that we love. But yet, Psalm 63 verse 3 says, Because your steadfast love is better than life. It's better than all of that. That's why the psalmist says, my lips will praise you, so I will bless you, he says, as long as I live, and I will lift up my hands in your name. And Nehemiah says, boy, you're the God of heaven, you're great, you're awesome, you're covenant keeping God, you don't lie, but you, are a, you have steadfast love. I know beyond a shadow of a doubt that, that is, some of these things are what is helping Nathan get through every day. About 12 years ago, their 13-year-old daughter with spinal bifida was taken to heaven. And I know at that time, these are truths that took Nathan through that time. These are the same truths that are helping him wake up in the morning and go to the hospital. Not know what the next day will bring. But we know that God is faithful and has steadfast love. Jump ahead to verse 10, Nehemiah chapter 1 and verse 10, latter part We see that not only a God of heaven, a great God, an awesome God, a covenant-keeping God, a steadfast and loving God, but we see God, our Redeemer. Nehemiah, Nehemiah chapter 1, verse 10. They are your servants and your people whom you have redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. We see in this passage that Nehemiah recalls some of the things that God said to Moses. I wouldn't be surprised, and maybe one day we can ask Nehemiah personally, maybe over a cup of coffee for some of you, over sweet tea for me, but we can sit down and we can ask Nehemiah, what exactly were you thinking about when you said that passage, when you said those, you know, wrote those things down? But it could be that Nehemiah was thinking about God redeeming his people out of Egypt. And the faithfulness and the power that God displayed in taking his people out of Egypt and bringing them redemption Now, in more recent past, just as we celebrated a few weeks ago on Easter Sunday, just as in a few minutes we're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper and remember his death, burial, and resurrection, and then look forward to his coming again, we too can be encouraged not only by the redemption of the people of Israel out of Egypt, but by Christ's life, ministry, and his resurrection, and a redemption of us into his name. This is the Redeemer God that we serve. It's a powerful God whom you have redeemed by your great power, verse 10 says, and by your strong hand. That's why we'll see in in the next verse, in verse 11, that Nehemiah says, and prayed to God, would you, God, be attentive and give ear and give success to your servant today? Because as he looks back, he probably looking back to, to the people of Israel coming out of Egypt, we can look back even more recently to all that Christ has done on the cross. And then, even in our own life, recalling how God has answered prayer, recalling ways that God has shown his power. Those are some of the things that encourage me as I look back. Now, I'm a, I'm a, I am a faithful forgetter. Can you say that? Are you a faithful forgetter? In essence, I forget easily, but the Lord often will use his word and use other people. Sometimes my wife, she's a great Holy Spirit representative, and and use some of these people to go, but remember when? But remember when God did this? But don't you remember that God's doing this? But don't you see? And like, yes, yes. Because he's a covenant-keeping God. He's powerful, works with a mighty hand. So we need to remember who God is, but secondly, we also need to remember our place before God. Humility. To remember our place before God. We are to be servants. We won't read all these verses again, but in Nehemiah 1.6, it says you're a servant and then also "Your servants. In verse 7, you're a servant again. In verse 8, you're a servant. In verse 10, you're servants. In verse 11, you're a servant, you're a you're a servant. Do you get the point? Nehemiah is like, God, I, we, we are your servants. We don't stand here to demand. We don't stand here in expectation that you're obligated to bless us and obligated to do these things. This stands in stark contrast to the prosperity gospel movement of today. That is not the type of God we served. He has given us the greatest gift we could ever receive through the person of Jesus Christ in salvation. We should never expect any more than that. Now, God in his grace and his mercy often gives us above and beyond an abundance many times. It's not always in material possessions. But we need to remember our place before God. We are to be servants. We're to be servants. Sat across the table from another friend recently and was blessing to hear him say, you know, as he he kind of recounted some of the difficulties they faced, he says, but... God's teaching me some important lessons. I said, "Oh yeah." He said, "Absolutely." He said, "In fact, he said, through these difficulties, I've done things that I never imagined that I would do, that I that I kind of thought I was above, but God is teaching me that I'm not all that I thought I was." In essence, my friend, like me and like you, we're learning how to be servants. We need to be God's servants. We're also to be submissive as we place ourselves before God, as we're humble. Humility reminds us that we're servants, but also reminds us that we're to be submissive. Notice verse 5 of chapter 1, Nehemiah chapter 1 and verse 5. And I said, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love, notice this, with those who love him and do what? Keep his commandments. That oftentimes is, is divided in modern-day Christianity. In modern-day Christianity, many times the focus is, yes, we love Jesus. We love him. Keep his commandments? Oh, I don't know about that. That kind of cramps my style. I'm not, I'm, not, I'm, not real, I'm not real sure about all the stuff. But I love Jesus. Well, as servants, we're to be submissive. We're to say, God wants me to do that? Okay, I'll do it. I'm ready. I want to obey. I want to be obedient. We're to be submissive. Those who love him, those who keep his commandments. Also, as we come in humility before God as remembering our place, another part of this is to be reverent and trusting. Notice with me in verse 11 of Nehemiah chapter 1. Verse 11 of Nehemiah chapter 1. O Lord... Let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant, to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name. Who delight to fear your name. And then it goes on, And give success to your servant today and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. So we're to be reverent and trusting. God, help us to delight to fear in you. Help us delight to, to have reverence before you and to know that that you are enough, that you are powerful, that you can work, that that you're worthy of our service, that you're worthy of our obedience. When I think I can kind of stand in my arrogance and declare, no, but I know a better way, God, that I would say, Lord, forgive me. Help me to humble myself before you. Help me to serve you. Help me to be submissive. Help me to be reverent. Not only are we too... Worship him. Not only would he be humble before him, but number three, we're supposed to confess. We should repent of our sins before God. Repent of our sins before God. Nehemiah chapter 1 and verses 6 and 7. Let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant that I now pray before you day and night. For the people of Israel, your servants, the notice Confessing the sins of the people of Israel, which we have sinned against you. This is national. he's, He's understanding that there's a national confession that needs to happen here. I'm telling you, the United States of America, there is a national confession that needs to happen. May we pray for revival of this country. I, I, mean, I know Atlanta is considered the Bible Belt, but there's a lot of sin in the Bible Belt, let me tell you. In fact, I think it was two years ago, uh, Atlanta was in the top ten of the, of the most sinful cities of the world. Yep, that's our, that's our place. We need a national confession. We have run far from the, the commandments and far from a reverence and a trusting relationship in the one nation under God. We need a national confession, but also we need a personal. And it really, this is where it starts. Notice again in verse 6 and 7. So in verse 6, Let you be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant that I now pray before you day and night for the people of Israel, your servants, confessing the sins of the people of Israel, which we, and then he begins to bring himself into this, which we have sinned against you. Even I in my father's house have sinned. In verse 7, we have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, the statutes, and the rules that you commanded your servant Moses. So may there be a personal confession. Part of the Lord's Supper is just that. And I hope maybe you've taken some time this weekend to to evaluate your heart and to come before the Lord and say, Lord, if there's unconfessed sin, God, I want to resolve that. Not for Pastor David's sake, not so that I'm not embarrassed on the day of the Lord's Supper, but, God, so that I can please you and be clean before you and repent and have a a restored and close relationship with Jesus Christ, a personal confession. Now notice the difference, Verse one, chapter 1 and verse 6 says, confessing the sins which we have sinned against you, but then in verse 11, notice the difference that confession brings. In verse 11, there's a phrase that says, you are servants who delight to fear your name. So from one section in verse 6, he's saying, you know, we have sinned and we, we have corruption. And then in verse 11 says, now we're your servants who delight to fear to fear your name. I pray that God would help us individually and corporately as One Hope Church to be a people who would say, Lord, forgive me of my sins, and I want to delight to fear your name. I don't want to be ashamed. I'm not trying to hide things. I'm not trying to keep a corner of a sin that's just, you know, it's not hurting anybody else. I'm just going to kind of keep it for me. But Lord, help me to repent before you and to delight, to have joy, to seek To serve you with all of my heart. So we see the confession. Then number four, we see supplication. Humbly requesting God to work out his will. Humbly requesting that God would work out his will. We see Nehemiah's request for God to listen in verse six. Let your ear be attentive. Then it says to hear the prayer of your servant. Similar in verse 11 says, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant. There's nothing wrong with us asking, God, would you you be attentive? Would you you listen? Of course, we know that he does. But I don't take offense when my children come to me and say, Dad, can you listen for a minute? Dad, I've got a question. Dad, I want to share something. I I want to tell you something that's on my heart. No, I don't take offense to that. Rather, I said, yes, I do want to hear and if I can help, I do want to help. Now, God doesn't say if I can help; we know He can help. So may we, like Nehemiah, say, "Yes, Lord, would You be attentive?" We see ne- Nehemiah's request for God to see the situation. Nehemiah chapter one and verse six. Another phrase that he has it says, "Let your eyes open, or let your eyes be open." We. Uh, we, we cannot see, oftentimes, the whole situation at hand. As I began to, you know, going back to the coaching things, I began to meet some of the kids at the beginning of the season, and now the, just a little bit more that I know, I have a lot better of an understanding of some of the difficulties those kids have, even during practice. But in the very beginning, I, I, didn't, I didn't understand hardly anything at all because I just first met them. And now I understand a little bit more how much more so does God, our creator, who knows everything about us and still loves us, how he can see the whole situation. He knows what you're facing. He knows what I'm facing. He knows what each student in this school who comes in the gym and who tomorrow will be running around here and each teacher that will come early and stay late maybe and, and work and teach. Every individual God sees. Just as Nehemiah was requesting, but God was already, he, he had been working ahead of time. But Nehemiah was voicing it. Let your, God, would your ears be open, attentive and your eyes be open? And then we see Nehemiah's request for God to act according to his will. Look, look with me in verse 8. Remember the word that you commanded your servant Moses? And that's interesting. Nehemiah goes back to something that God's already said. He goes back to God's word, and likewise we should as well. He says, remember the words you commanded your servant Moses, saying, if you're unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though your outcast are in the uttermost parts of heaven, from there I will gather them and bring them to the place that I have chosen to make my name dwell there. Nehemiah is praying that God's will would be done. He goes back to His word. He goes back to the promises that God has already given and, and, and to, made very clear to Moses, and Nehemiah goes back to that and says, "Lord, may you act according to your will." Well, I pray that that would be our prayer too, that He would act according to His will and not ours. So burdened so oftentimes as I would hear, uh, I mean, just time and time again in our ministry in Brazil, that, that it, the prosperity gospel is rampant. In that country. And I would hear time and time again people say, I determine that God's going to do this. What? Who are you to determine what God's going to do? Why not we come humbly before the Lord and say, God, you know all things. You're the great and awesome and covenant-keeping God who has steadfast love. God, I'm going to pray to you because I humbly don't know the whole situation. God, may your will be done. And help me to respond in peace, help me to respond with a good attitude rather than coming and declaring and determining what God must do. No, that's not biblical. No, we need to pray that God's will be done. Notice with me in verse 11. O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant, to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name and give success to your servant today. And then notice this, and grant him what? Mercy. 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 That we need to pray, God, may your will be done according to your mercy. We, just, we don't deserve any of this goodness, but God, we, we just humbly ask that you would act according to your mercy. So we see that this is the upward response. Then, lastly, let's look at the outward response Nehemiah chapter 1 and verse 11. We see here in verse 11, he begins to not only understand there's a need and have an inward response. He's not only now, you know, just looking to heaven and saying all these things and worshiping and coming humbly before God, but he begins to, to notice God is moving him to do something about it. Notice verse 11. Oh Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant, to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name, and give success. To your servant today, and grant him mercy in the sight of this man, and he's referring to King Artaxerxes. Grant him success according to your mercy in the sight of this man. Nehemiah chapter 1 and verse 2, we see that Nehemiah begins asking questions of his brother Hey, tell me about the remnant, tell me about the people in Jerusalem, how's the city? He begins to ask questions, but now he begins to form a plan. So he's not just asking questions. Now that he's been made aware of the need, he begins forming a plan. He begins to be ready to act. Nehemiah desires to leave the citadel, a fortified city, a position as cupbearer to go to a weak and wallless city. He's, he's ready to, to abandon his position because he wants to fulfill God's purpose. May God help us all to be in the same position. Lord, as we are made aware of needs all around us in our neighborhood, students in your school, students at KSU, at Truett McConnell, at Bob Jones University, wherever you may be, Lord, may we be made aware, have an inward response, pray to you, our God of heaven, but then have an outward response and be ready to fulfill your purpose so much more than any position that I ever desire. That is the outward response that we see Nehemiah. And lastly, we'll begin to see throughout the rest of this book that God, as He calls us to act for Him, as He calls us to move forward by faith, oftentimes it will involve sacrificing what we know: the citadel, the fortified city, the position its cupbearer, sacrifice those things in order to learn what God knows. And what God values and what he wants to reveal to us in the days ahead. That requires moving forward by faith.